All right, so we've been talking about rest for your soul. Um, I don't know, you know, how to evaluate this, so I'm just going to ask you to kind of contemplate as we start off tonight. We have talked about this over the past month, that Jesus promised, come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. In the past four weeks, five weeks, have you found that Jesus gives rest for your soul? Or is this purely a discussion? Or we come out on Wednesday night and, yeah, oh, that's good. And then we go back to the race and the turmoil and the chaos. Is the Word of God producing what the Word of God always does when we receive it, fruit, in our lives? And I hope that it is. I hope that as we talked about comparisons and we talked about the myth of more and stuff like that, that it starts to make me adjust. It makes me adapt what I'm doing and how I'm thinking and the choices I'm making, the way that I'm living according to the word of God. Um, And if it isn't, I invite you to because there is life and freedom in receiving the word of God. There is breath and water and, and food for your soul in taking the word of God in and living it out. Uh, And if we're not doing that, what are we doing? (laughs) Don't you have better things to do with your night than to listen to something you're not going to pay attention to or not going to put into action, right? So we are going to receive these things and we're going to try to live these things. Now, tonight what I want to talk about has so many tentacles into our lives and it is such a part of our culture um, that, you know, I'm passionate about let's not fall prey to this. But I recognize it's a dicey proposition. So bear with us. We're going to try to walk through some of this because one of the ways that the enemy steals the rest from our soul is to plant inside of us what I've called the cancer of fear. Um, And the idea there is that as many of us have interacted with cancer in our lives, it is a disease that eats us up and it causes dysfunction. It ca- it's, a, it's literally a deadly disease and fear does that. It starts inside and it starts to grow and it, and it reaches out and it just kills and poisons everything about our spiritual health if we let it have its way. Now, as I say that, I've seen that happen. I think you probably have seen that happen often enough to know how deadly fear can be. Have you seen that happen in anyone's life? where they've allowed fear to steal precious, immeasurable things from them, whether it's they can't go outside or they're scared to take any risks or chances or be in a relationship or spend any money or whatever. They kind of like keep walling off and walling off until they're so safe that they basically are as good as dead. You know what I mean? And fear does that. It just keeps walling you off and walling you off. As I say that, what I would say to you is, There is such a thing as wise caution. We are not supposed to be idiots running around with no thought for what's the wise thing to do here. We should be thoughtful in the decisions we make and the paths we choose and the the choices and how we sort through those choices. We should be careful about those things because the Bible tells us that choices have consequences. You know, our world would like to say that choices do not have consequences. That you can think whatever you want, be whatever you want, identify however you want, and it has no consequence, right? It's just 
Everything's good. Everything's fine. You can decide if you want to believe, if you don't want to believe. It has no consequence. It's each to each his own. But we know choices have consequences and you should be. And often we are warned in scripture. You should be warned. Be careful the choice you make. Be ready to live with the fallout of the choices that you make. So you don't just fly into a relationship and get married to somebody and like, oh, what happened? This person turned out to be not a nice person. Yeah, choices have consequences. So make good choices for sure. But on the other side, there is this destructive fear that once I recognize there is potential danger out there, I start to act like there's potential danger everywhere. And that potential danger is inevitable. And so I run from everything all the time and I start to destroy my life. And so before I even get to the notes, things that I have, what comes to mind is the verse 2 Timothy 1.7, which simply says this, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. So I wonder how many of us would say that that's what God has given us, love, power, and a sound mind. Pretty powerful stuff. Um, But I want to focus on the first part. God has not given us a spirit of fear. As you think about that, that doesn't mean that there's nothing to fear in the plan of God for my life. But it says he hasn't given us the spirit of fear. So when you hear the word spirit of fear, what does that bring to mind? What is Paul trying to tell us about what God hasn't given us when he says God hasn't given us a spirit of fear? Any ideas, any thoughts that come to your mind? Because people are like, well, if it's fear, it's not from God, so I don't... Okay, well, he also tells us to fear the Lord. So what are we talking about here? What's the difference between good fear, healthy fear, and this fear, this spirit of fear that God has not given us? What do you think? Okay. There are many things where the promise of I can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And I know that the power of the Spirit, those who wait on the Lord renew their strength and mount up with wings. The Spirit brings strength and therefore confidence in the calling. And, and in some sense, there is a contrast between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of fear. The sense that the Spirit of God tells me things and gives me resources for things. And the Spirit of fear tells me other things. And pulls resources out of me, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that, I think, when you're going back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in fruit, you know, the result of it, what brings life versus what brings death. It's certainly the spirit of fear brings death. And so there's this contrast that's given to us. Um, and I don't know if we ever evaluate ourselves for what spirit am I living in? Because we are programmed to respond to dangers in our world. How many dangers are put in front of you every day that you're supposed to be on high alert about. You know what I mean? 
Are you eating the right things? Is there poison in your food? Is there poison in your water? Who's going to snatch up your kids? And what about the people who are going to steal your credit card information? And Right? We live in a world that makes a lot of hay about everything to be afraid of all the time. And if you're not careful and you're not discerning, you start to get into this mind that wisdom is to avoid all danger. And you're sure of what you don't want. Fear tells you what you don't want. It doesn't tell you what you do want. So what you wind up with is avoiding a lot of things, but not embracing the stuff that makes life worth living. It's the way the enemy gets us trapped at unrest in our soul. Because fear doesn't bring peace. Fear brings churning, right? Unrest. So I fear produces in me this unrest, and it's a pathway that the enemy loves to get us on. So in some sense, this is an overarching idea that covers some of the stuff we've already discussed. Fear of missing out, fear of not having everything that I want, fear of you know losing out on the myth of more, uh, fear of losing in comparison. Uh, in other words, someone's better than me, someone's more desirable than me, someone's nicer than me, someone is, is more popular than me, someone in compare has more than I do, someone has got their way more often, more power than I have in this relationship, more than me, and so I lose in comparison to them. The fear of that drives people. So in some ways, this is an umbrella that overarches a lot of stuff. Even fear that when I say, Jesus said this, I will give you rest, you're like, well, what about me? Maybe he didn't mean me. Maybe something about me disqualifies me from that promise. So there are people who believe that that's nice and well for the right people, but I'm somehow in the wrong category. And because of that, it doesn't apply to me. And so fear permeates all of this stuff. But I want to talk about some of the ways that we allow ourselves to get caught up in fear. And I kind of just want to talk about uh, two things that I hear over and over again as we talk about life and uh, struggling and how do I get my life back on track and with the Lord and stuff. What are the big hooks the enemy has of fear in us? Uh, the first one I would say is fear that bad things might come. And it's a very general category, but fear of the bad things that might come. Let me ask you, how many of you believe that some bad things will come in your life from here until you're with the Lord? Hmm. Yeah, the verse that I wrote down there, John 16, 33, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says something could be less than encouraging to them. He says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. Oh, good. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble in this world. Bad things will come. So if you have adopted a mindset that says, fear tells me the truth, fear brings salvation, fear is a pathway towards safety and hope, then I'm going to tell you the words of Jesus which says, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, Jesus is a mighty Savior. He can move mountains. He can redeem us. He can rescue us from the fires of hell. He can bring us into eternity and his kingdom, make us his children. He is a powerful Savior. If trouble in this world were something that we needed to avoid, Jesus would have saved us from it. He did not. 
In matter of fact, he didn't save himself from it. He chose to enter into it. He left heaven, glory, splendor, perfection, and said, let me come live in your trouble. That is, you know, we talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the, the trouble there. That's amazing and fantastic. And anytime we sing about the resurrection, it just stirs us up and we want to give praise. But think about the incarnation. He didn't have to come into a world of trouble. If you and I had that choice, here's the pathway. Trouble, not trouble. Which are you choosing? Not trouble. Which did Jesus choose? And he had to choose it. He had to pick it. He had to step out of not trouble into trouble. I'm hoping that we can get rid of the the way the enemy sucks us into this lie to believe that a trouble-free life is the most desirable life. Because it isn't. As a matter of fact, one of the earmarks of being a Christian is that we persevere through suffering. Truth is, whether you're a Christian or not, you have trouble. You, you don't, we don't get to opt out of trouble. Not like Jesus says, now come to me and I'll take away all your trouble. I will rescue you from every bad thing. If it were that way, he's already been a liar hundreds of times in our lives. That's what he, not what he says. He says, I will save your soul. Even when Jesus makes that promise about rest for our souls, he's not saying I will give you rest in your life. I'll take all the the troubled waters and make them still. He says I will give you rest in there. Even in this verse, it's coupled with, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. And then the other side of the sandwich is, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Meaning, whatever trouble you face, whatever thing you're scared of, Jesus is greater and has overcome. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a temporary pain and suffering from that trouble. There is. In this world, we will have trouble and it will hurt. And sometimes it can hurt so much that it takes your breath away. It can overwhelm you. You will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Meaning that by faith, when I face trouble, it is merely a reminder that my God is greater than this, that this may last for a moment, but my future and my eternity and my forever and my life is ever secure in him because my savior has overcome this. Even death, right? When we say goodbye to someone who has died, we're confident that My Lord has overcome death, has conquered death and will put it under his feet so that one day there will be no more goodbye. And no matter how long I have to live with the goodbye, there is a million times longer that I'll never have to live with it again. As long as it feels, it's nothing in comparison to the joy that is to come. So so Jesus says, You do not need to fear trouble. You need to expect trouble by living at peace and taking heart in believing that I have overcome the world. Fear will tell you bad things are going to come. Oh no, look out. The Bible will tell us bad things will come. Now, I'm not saying every bad thing will come. 
or lots of bad things will come. For some lives, it feels like lots. For others, it feels like not a lot. But everybody faces trouble. And a lot of people that you don't think have any trouble live with trouble. You walk into church, you walk into your job, you walk into school, you walk, and you look around and you assess what you think people are experiencing by what you see. But I can tell you, as I sit and talk with people behind the scenes, that it's stunning what people carry that nobody else knows about. Like, rock you to your core, stunning what people have to deal with. So we need to just accept the reality that we all have trouble, that I can't look around at somebody else and say, I'd rather have your life than mine. You have no idea what their life is. And you know God made you for yours. So bad things will come. Not every bad thing, but bad things will come. I actually wrote down here, life will kill you. Literally. It will. Life will kill you. (laughs) But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You will have trouble in this world, but I have overcome. We need to recognize that what God has promised us is eternal joy in heaven not here. This is not heaven. And I'm not going to make this heaven. It means people are going to be angry, hurtful, dumb, betraying. They're going to do things that I don't like, that I don't want. Things are going to happen in my life that if I had a vote, I would vote no on. But thank God I don't have a vote because my blindness to believing that avoiding trouble is the way to live is what would keep me as a... uh, little tiny infant, an unformed blob instead of growing into the image of his son. It is the struggle that helps us form and the struggle that God uses to stretch and grow our faith. The struggle that, if you're honest, brings you closer to him, doesn't it? So much of today's world is about alleviating struggle in my life. I just need to alleviate struggle. I just need to, to get rid of this thing or that thing. And we, we deal a lot with mental illnesses and things like that. And I wish I didn't have this and I wish I didn't have that. And, and I understand all those struggles. But listen, if it was best for you for that thing to be gone, for that struggle to be resolved, and you put it in the Lord's hands, he would resolve it. But most of the time, it's better for him to go with you through it. Because in it, he draws you close. Have you, have you walked a path of struggle where your desperation for Jesus because of the struggle drew you closer than you would have ever gotten if everything was smooth sailing? But we don't like that. But that's the truth, isn't it? And so God, as a good and loving father, brings us into trouble so that we will be close to him. Because it's not the measure of our well-being how our life is going. It's the measure of our well-being, how our life is going. How are we connected to our life? How close, how intimate, how real, how living, breathing, alive is that connection? And that connection gets better when my life is a mess because I'm desperate for him. You know, we talk about addiction. We talk about getting to rock bottom. Rock bottom? What's that? That's enough trouble that convinces you that you need some help. Right? God knows all about rock bottom. He's taken me there. How about you? He knows that some of us are thick and stubborn and it takes that kind of experience for us to humble ourselves and to go before the Lord and to receive what we needed all along but we would have never pursued and we would have never sought 
except that he's here with us. So bad things might come, yeah. Um, the other side of that is that we project reality. And I talked a little bit about this on Sunday. When I get afraid, I get afraid, and I usually don't get afraid of good things coming. Oh, I, I'm just so scared I might win the lottery. It would be awful. Like, we're usually not doing that. We're usually scared of the bad things that come. Now, bad things aren't the only things that come. We have good things coming and bad things coming. But we project a reality and compare it to what we think might be. And what we think, what God sends your way is better than what would have come otherwise. So when you look at, when, you, when you're afraid of, of the journey that's ahead, do you realize that God brought you to the journey that is the best possible journey for you for a eternal purpose? And because of that, you can walk that journey with peace, with hope, with joy, because it's God's hand bringing it into your life. We struggle to believe that because we imagine a future that was never coming. Well, why does it have to be like this? Why can't it be like that? Well, that future wasn't on the table. Well, why not? Because it wasn't. Because God's God. That's, that's, he knows what's coming. So this future that you have, this journey that you're walking is the best possible future for you according to your spiritual well-being. Um, other reason we might think bad things would come. Well, I might make some mistakes. I might step out. You know people who are paralyzed like this? A few years ago, I, I noticed this trend amongst 20-somethings where they didn't want to make any decisions in, just as a generation. Nobody wanted to make any decisions because if I make this decision, it might not mean I do that. And I might not do that. So I just stay here in this no man's land, living in mom and dad's basement for, you know, I don't want to do anything because I might make a mistake. I might cut off some possibilities or whatever, right? And they're true. You might make mistakes and they might have consequences. Your mistakes may have consequences. But remember this. Let me encourage you. God is not about a clean life. He's about a life that is growing. And growth is messy. It starts with a seed that gets stuffed down in some dirt. And then it gets turned into mud with some water. And it puts roots down into the deeper dirt and the darkness. And it's messy. Growth is a messy process. And if you've raised kids, you've experienced that growth is a messy process. And if you've looked in a mirror, you've experienced that growth is a messy process. Some of the biggest messes that I've created in my life, thinking I was doing the right thing or knowing I was doing the wrong thing, are part of what God built into my growth process. Not because I thought, oh, that's brilliant, God, but because God knew for some reason that's the way I needed to grow. Growth is messy. And there's a certain genre, there's a, maybe you know the certain personality that wants to get it right first time and never make a mistake. The enemy wants to come and whisper in your ear going, oh, you don't want to try that. You're not sure enough. You don't know for sure. You better hold back. You better wait. You better, everything's got to be perfect. Everything's got to be right. You can never make a mistake. That whisper of fear is a whisper to death, not life. Because God moves us forward and we embrace the mess. Growing is messy. Fear tries to pull me back from the mess that accompanies real living, real learning, real growing. Did you ride a bike perfectly the first time you got on it? Me either. Matter of fact, I took some pretty good spills. And once you really thought you knew how to ride a bike and you got going real fast and then you took a spill, you learned some other things, right? Growing and learning is a messy process. Uh, in your marriage, did you make any mistakes as you got to know each other and your first couple of years of marriage? Did you have some fights that you look back on now and think, what in the world? was that all about? 
Now I'm like, I would never get trapped in that. But how did I learn that? How did I learn that this is not something to hold on to? This is something to let go on. Because I held on to it and I was like, this is terrible. I don't want this. Let's, let's do it differently. Let's figure out a different way. You grow in a very messy process. And sometimes we look around in church and we're like, look at that mess and look at that mess. We don't say, look at that growth and look at that growth. We misidentify it. And, and we wind up being instruments of condemnation or discouragement instead of voices of the Spirit that say, you're in a growing process, don't give up. And you're not going to get it right the first time, but keep at it. I know you'll get it. Because I know the Spirit's in you. And I know the Spirit's working in you. So let him keep working and you're going to figure this out. It's a conversation I have with growing kids in my family all the time. You're going to get this. I know you will. I know right now it feels like this swirling cloud of, I don't, you know, I can't figure this out. You know, first relationships that you get into and it's this dating relationship and, uh, you know, uh, what what should we do? What The first reaction was, it's a big secret and nobody knows who I like. And we were like, that's not happening in our house. So we're going to talk about it. Talk about your mess. Let's go. And, and out it comes. And here we go. We're going to talk about Because why? It's, it's not shameful to be in a growing process. It can't be. Sometimes we shame ourselves for the growing process because we didn't get it all right yet. But we're growing. We're learning. So don't let the enemy whisper fear into you in something that God is producing good from. And so fear, bad things might come. Bad things might come. Constantly turns you back from healthy decisions or thought processes. It keeps you stuck in patterns that hold you back from what God has invited you to do. Uh, One of the things that you notice in Acts 4 when uh, persecution comes against the church is that the church gets together and prays and they don't pray like we would pray. Before we go away on a trip or whatever, we all grab hands. I saw somebody in Nashville when we were away at the conference right before we were getting on the plane to come home. There was a group of four and they were standing around, they were holding hands and they were praying. And I could tell you what they were praying even though I didn't hear their prayer. Lord, give us traveling mercies and give us safety as we travel and all that. That's what we pray for. So the the apostles have gone out and and spread their faith and and the the early church went out and there was persecution on them. They were breathing out threats, putting them to death. They're going to put you to death if you keep talking. And they went in a room and they prayed and the whole room was shaken with the power of the Spirit. You know what they prayed for? Lord, give us boldness. Not safety. Boldness. I wonder if we're raising a generation that is captive to fear because we preach safety, 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 and we never touch on boldness. We never touch on dream big for God and get out there and do some things and have confidence that God has a purpose for your life and he's made you for something and go do that thing. Make a difference with the choices you make, with the opportunities he gives your way. And if you blow it, you blow it. Keep at it. Get, Get back up on the bike and go again. You know how this goes. Get back to it. We're so afraid of the mess that we shrink back and shrink back and shrink back. If you're one of those people that are thinkers, I'm not going to look at anybody because I know some of you are, but if you're one of those people who are thinkers, right? And you get stuck in your head in this fear about, oh no, what about this? And what about that? And what about this other thing? And I got to make sure this doesn't happen and that doesn't happen. Ask yourself this question. How far down that path do I have to go until I find that magic land of peace? Have you ever traveled far enough down that path to get to peace? Because it's not down that path. It's the wrong direction. It is a trap 
that keeps you spinning around and around. It is the enemy's workshop in you that keeps you stuck in fear so that you hold back from the rest God wants to bring to your soul by volunteering to churn inside by considering this possibility. And what if they say this? And what if they say that? And what if this happens? And what if my alarm doesn't go off? And what if that person hates me? And what all the possibilities that you can imagine. There is nowhere in the Bible where you've ever been called to imagine all the bad possibilities and avoid them. Not even suggestively. There are plenty of places in the Bible where it says, don't fear them, for I have called you. You Go to Joshua 1. Be strong and courageous. Don't look at the people in the land. Look at me. I've called you to this. I will go with you. I will be with you wherever you go. My power will be with you. And then he demonstrates it in the first battle. You walk across the Jordan River and the waters pile up as you walk through. And then you go to Jericho and you march around the city for seven days. And you endure all of the insults that come down off the wall at you. People saying, look at these crazy people walking around our city. What do they think they're going to do? Right before the Lord makes the walls crumble. An invitation to walk forward by faith instead of fear. All right, so bad things might happen. The other thing, and this is another bad thing that might happen, but it has its own category because it's such a big deal. You, you live in fear that people might somehow reject you. And there's lots of variations. They might not like you. You might not be popular. They might not think what you want them to think about you. But somehow, some way, they've measured you and they found you to be less than you want to be in their eyes. People live completely enslaved to the opinions of others. They do. You might. I'm not going to judge, but I'm just saying there are people who are so tuned in to what everybody thinks or certain people think. My mom, my dad, my boss, my spouse, my wife. What they think of me is going to define me. And I'm afraid I live in fear of their disapproval, their rejection, their you know, the, 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 the negative coming from them. I live in fear of that. And because of that, I live as a slave to fear. I wrote on the back of this, Proverbs 29, 25, it says, the fear of man is a snare. All right, so a snare is a what? What's a snare? It's a trap. How does a trap work exactly? It binds, okay. But, but how do you get in a trap? You walk into the trap because something there you want and you don't see the way it's going to bind you, the way it's going to trap you, right? The Bible says fear of man is a trap, a snare. It is set out to capture you. So think about that picture. There's something there that you want. I'm living with this high respect for the opinion of man, what they think of me, what they say about me, what, how I look to them, whether they approve of me, whether they appreciate me, whether they're going to uh, honor me or reject me, whether they're going to trash me or build me up. I, I live for the feedback of people, right? Feels like, well, if enough people liked me, I would feel good about myself. I've had people tell me before that clearly if they had my life, they'd be fine because everybody likes me. So if everybody liked them like they liked me, they'd be fine. It's the trap. I just think it's, the problem is not enough people like me. 
or not the right people like me. It's this fear of man. And so I'm lured in to this fear trap and it catches me and it binds me and it holds me captive to it. So I'm living, constantly reacting to all of the people around me that I want to have the right reaction and I try to control what they think about me. I want them to think the right things about me. The Bible says this is a trap. And traps are not for, in, in the Bible times, traps are not for, uh, oh, there was a fun game. I caught you. Now let's try it again. What's well, a trap for? Dead. Yeah. To kill you. Trap you and kill you. Right? So this is a deadly game. This is a, I want to destroy you game. Fear of man. And so what will happen in this is the enemy comes to you and says, did you see how that person looked at you? Did you notice they didn't even say hi to you? Or more. Yeah, get on, if you're going to pick up that phone and call that person, you better have a good answer for this because you know your mom is going to ask or your spouse is going to ask or whatever. They're going to want this. And, this. and you live cringing at the... And then when they do it, it freaks you out and flips you out because you do everything you can to try to turn it back around. And so you become tuned in and responsive to, not the Spirit of God, to all this fallible human input, this wrecked world around us is now guiding your life. And you're just trying to avoid disapproval. You're not living for anything. You're just living to avoid unpleasantness from people. And the sense that that brings you because you believe that somehow their approval or their feedback actually says something meaningful about you. On the other side of that, I wrote down here, your image is not you. Even if you could perfectly portray the image that you'd like to portray and everybody thought of you what you'd like them to think of you, guess what? Complete fail. Jesus says uh, in Matthew 23, I want to turn to Matthew 23 and read what Jesus says to these people who had it together. They had a pretty good image. They had a pretty good reputation in the world around them. We call them Pharisees, but you know they had a really good reputation back then. In verse 27, woe to you, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus saved his most scathing rebukes for the people who were able to play the game of image control. And he said, It's a lie. It's a deadly lie. As a matter of fact, he said to them many times, you think you have righteousness because of what you do, but you are lost and you will miss the kingdom of God. How deadly of a lie is it for you to feel like you've got everything okay with God, but to miss it completely? That's what what he said to them. And why? Because they believe that what people thought about them defined who they were. And if I can put off an image where everybody thinks this about me, that's who I am. It's a convincing lie, but it's also the bait in the trap meant to destroy your life. All right, one last thing. Let's go over to John chapter 10 because I think the words of Jesus here really describe this whole uh, methodology that Satan wants to use on you and I. It is the pl- I put it down, it's the plot against a full life. And so these are familiar verses, but but with thinking about this as fear and you know, in Ephesians 6, the, the Bible talks about the armor of God. It talks about um, take up the whole armor of God and have the 
the you know helmet of salvation and the blessed breastplate of righteousness and the shoes with the gospel of peace and the sword of the spirit. But it talks about the shield and it talks about what the shield is for. And it's the only spot where you see this armor in action in Ephesians 6. It talks about take the shield of faith by which you can stop, thwart, quench the of who? Of the devil. So the devil's throwing fiery darts or flaming arrows or whatever at you, trying to clearly destroy you, cause damage to you, defeat you, kill you. And what? I put my shield up and my shield is what? Faith. Not fear. It's faith. So what am I doing with faith? What's the enemy shooting at me if I'm blocking it with faith? lies, but it's fear, isn't it? I mean, it's doubt and fear. That's what faith answers, doubt and fear. So what's the enemy shooting at you? Doubt and fear. Why? Because he wants to destroy you. Now, keep that in mind as we read these verses. Therefore, Jesus said again, verse seven, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus draws a contrast between himself as the gate and the thief who comes. And this thief is our enemy. It's Satan, the devil himself. And what does the enemy come to do? Kill, steal, destroy. Think about how does he kill, steal, and destroy? Certainly there are people that he drags down the pathway of addiction or even suicide or whatever to actually literally kill them, to steal their life from them. He loves to kill, steal, destroy. But he doesn't just want that blatant stuff. He wants to steal kill and destroy in your life too. I have come that they may have life to the full. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It's why as you start to grab a hold and let that ruminate in your brain, it's why I say to you, the enemy loves to multiply pain. There's plenty of painful stuff in your life. He loves to make it more. So he'll bring fear And he'll tell you, pain is coming. Live in that pain before it gets here. Like, not just when it hits. Live in it for the days, the weeks, the years, the months ahead of it so that it's multiplied, right? And then when you're hurt, make sure other people hurt too. Lash out at other people so that it's not just your hurt. Now, multiplied. He loves to, and then if you did something that you regret that's a source of pain in your life, you look back on it and you keep re-experiencing that pain. Why? Because the enemy loves to steal and kill and destroy. That's what he loves to do. And so he loves to take you back to pain, back to pain. So when you enter, like, let's say, you know, you enter a period of grief where you lose someone, what does the enemy want to do? Keep you there. I'm not saying you shake it off. There's a process you walk through by faith, but I'm saying God doesn't keep you stuck. He steps you forward in it. But the enemy, he wants to keep making the U-turn with you. Back to the pain. 
He loves to steal everything good that God has built in your life. Every good gift that comes from the Father, the enemy loves to steal it away from you. Whether it's the the simple things like peace and, and hope, or whether it's anything you've learned that you put your faith in, that you started enacting, maybe a resolution you made at the beginning of a year and the enemy loves to steal it away from you. Whenever you're making progress, he loves to steal your progress. Whenever you find a a way to have hope or comfort, he loves to steal that away. That's what the enemy loves to do. How does he do it? Fear. He says, "Uh uh-oh, you're in trouble now. You better react to this. You better react to this danger. Not to the power of God, to the danger, react to the danger. He loves to increase despair, to whisper in your ear, there's no point, there's no hope, there's no way, it's never going to change, it's never going to get better, it's always going to be dark. He loves to confuse so that you wander without knowing which direction to go because you're afraid any step you take in any direction is going to be devastating. He loves to accuse you so that you're afraid of standing before your father who loves you. Sometimes I sit and I think, you know, what do I think it's going to be like when I stand before the Lord? And, and, and my upbringing, I had this whole thing in pattern about the shame that you have from when you failed the Lord. My shame was taken away by Christ on the cross. He paid for that. I don't stand before God as anything but his child, justified, washed, sanctified in Jesus Christ. But the enemy goes now, think about it. If you stand before God, he's going to know about your, you lost your temper and you thought these horrible things about that person and your pride and your, here it comes. He loves to accuse. Why? Because accuse takes me to steal, kill, destroy. So anything that can get what God is building, what God is giving, what God is breathing life into and take it out of you, that's what he's about. But Jesus said, I am come that they would have life and have it to the full. And so this scheme that the enemy uses of fear wants to occupy your brains with fear, wants to turn your focus towards the danger, keep you responding to what's dangerous, what's threatening, instead of to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. So for us as believers, it is a decision we make. Are we walking by faith or by sight, by what I see or by what he says? And we have to make that decision over and over and over again. So you go through an election year like we just went through and you hear all that stuff going on, faith or fear, by sight or by faith. Like what are you going to walk by here? People get all kinds of stirred up and riled up and I'm not saying there aren't good causes, but you know the difference between speaking up for something because you believe in it and, and speaking up with a heart that's at rest and getting all caught up in the turmoil as though that's going to do something and that's worthwhile. Who breathes that into our country and breathes that into our world? The enemy who loves to steal and kill and destroy. So why do we jump on board with it? So he keeps occupying us, convincing us that what we are afraid of is reliable and trustworthy without inviting us to see that we've chosen the wrong voice to treat as trustworthy and reliable. And it creates this endless cycle back again and back again to the potential dangers. And there are unlimited numbers of potential dangers. So the result is unrest. And like we said a couple weeks ago with the fruit trees, the fruit tells us we believed a lie. 
When I live at unrest, there is a reason I live at unrest, and it's because I believed something that created values and perspective in me, and I reacted to that, and it brought me a fruit that is a bad fruit. So I've got to go back to what I believe and believe what the truth is, confront myself with the truth so that I can see the fruit produced in me that is a good fruit. Jesus said, I'm come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is contrasting his offer, his work in us to the work of the thief. And by the way, in this world you will have trouble, but he came that your life would be full. Is it possible that you could have life to the full in a world that is filled with trouble? Why do we act like it is a slam dunk that that's not possible? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that I think that you know, we talk about Jesus saying I give life to the full. I, I don't know if I can explain that to you, but I know that the spirit can when I say that, when Jesus we gives us those words and I read that. You know inside of you what that, at least a taste of what that is. Life to the full. Is the path you're pursuing right now bringing you life to the full? Or is it just about survival? Because the enemy kind of always comes in and goes, the best you can hope to do is just make it through. Just survive. Just by the skin of your teeth. And you don't find that in the word of God. You find life to the full. So which is it? Is our hope in survival or in the thriving life that God wants to give us? Which one is it? And what you believe there drives what you shoot for, what you settle for, what you accept as normal, as real, as right. Life to the full or death? I'm just thinking about this as we're talking about this. I've talked about this many times before, but maybe some of you haven't heard it before. Uh, there's a description of our enemy in First Peter 5. Do you know what he's described as? A roaring lion. Roaring. Have you ever heard a lion roar? Have you ever been close to a lion that roars? That is a frightening event, isn't it? I mean, the ground shakes and there's the big, you're surprised at how big the beast is and you're surprised at how much it physically affects you to be in the reverberations of the roar of the lion. It has an effect on you. Now, most of the time, hopefully, there was some kind of barrier between you and the lion. (laughs) Hopefully. But you can imagine that a lion out on a plane somewhere, you know, hunting, when the lion roars, the animals that are, there's no barrier between them and the lion. They are afraid. So what do they do? Survival instinct. They run from the roar. Did you know that the way a lion hunts is the lion stands on one end of the plane, all the lionesses get on the other end of the plane. The lion roars, fear drives all of these animals away from the roar right into death. And the Bible describes our enemy as a roaring, not hunting, a roaring lion. 
He keeps yelling at you all the things you should be afraid of. We don't have to be afraid of anything. If God is for us, who can be against us? So why do we allow fear to grow, to take root, to drive our lives, to tell us that it's wise, to tell us that it's right, to tell us that, you know, we just happen to be realists and we just see the future. Why do we have this discourse in us? Why aren't we doing the work of throwing that stuff out and building our lives on faith? It is an invitation to plant the seeds that bring rest in our soul instead of unrest. And I hope it's something that we'll all take advantage of. All right, so we'll have, like I said, we have two more weeks. I got two more things to talk about and then we'll be done uh, heading into March. So looking forward to that. And I hope this is something that we can take and make alive in our lives as we go through the rest of this week.